The rest of you, uh, well, they head out and turn to Joshua chapter 8. In your Bibles, you want to have that open or scroll down or however it is that you get there. Um, and have that so you can follow along. It is a long passage, so we will read it as we go through it, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. Thank you, as always, for giving us uh, the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to a story of starting over, and yet it's a story that can make us very uncomfortable. So we pray that we would take it seriously and learn its lessons carefully and find the true king that it points us to. Thank you that today we're learning once again from Joshua. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them, being strong and courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray, speak through Joshua 8 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen. And amen. I don't know how many of you follow March Madness, uh, otherwise known as the NCAA College Basketball Tournament, or how many of you have, have filled out brackets, uh, and how many of those brackets have been busted uh, now. Uh, this year, the uh, bracket busting team has been number 15 seed Oral Roberts University. So we have a grad over here, very proud. Although I'm sorry to say they didn't make it through yesterday. Um, but it's always a big deal when a 15 seed upsets a two seed, as they did against number two, Ohio State. But that's not the biggest upset ever. That honor belongs to UMBC, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County who three years ago upset number one ranked Virginia, the top team in the nation. They uh, was the first and only time that a 16 seed beat a number one seed. And they beat them by 20 points. Virginia didn't just lose, they were embarrassed. It was the largest victory by an unranked team over a number one team in the history of college basketball. And after the loss, Virginia's head coach, Tony Bennett, great name, uh, told his team, you'll remember this, it will sting. Maybe a number one seed will get beat again, maybe not. Maybe we'll be the only number one seed to ever lose. It's life, it goes on. Their starting guard, Ty Jerome said, it's the same people that tell you how great you are and praise you when you're on top of the world. They're the same people who are going to kill you when you're at this point. And Coach Bennett said of his team, they had a historic season, and then we had a historic loss. And everyone remembers it. But what people don't remember was that 13 months later, after suffering the most humiliating and demoralizing defeat in the history of college basketball, Virginia came back and won the whole thing. The embarrassed losers of 2018 became the national champions of 2019. 
they went literally from worst to first. So how did they do that? Well, after the terrible loss, Coach Bennett started over, and he rebuilt his team's confidence, came up with a new strategy, uh, in humility asked several others for help, and then coached his team to victory. Now, here in the book of Joshua, they don't play basketball, and there is no tournament. Losses aren't measured in points, but in lives. And Joshua and the Israelites had just suffered an embarrassing military defeat at I. Spelled A-I, but pronounced I. And so they're devastated. And so what do they do? They start it over. And that's the story of Joshua 8. And like Coach Bennett, Joshua needed to rebuild his team's confidence, or his people's confidence. And like Coach Bennett, Joshua needed to come up with a new strategy. And like Coach Bennett, Joshua needed to exhibit great humility. And like Coach Bennett, Joshua needed to ask for help. And like Coach Bennett, Joshua needed to lead them to victory. And so he did. But it was much more than that. Joshua 8 lays out more than a new battle plan. It's a religious event undertaken at the command of God. And so from the opening words, verse 1, And the Lord said to Joshua, to the concluding statement, verse 34, And afterward he read all the words of the law. The presence and power of God filled this chapter as he commanded and Israel obeyed. And as Israel obeyed God's word, God used his power to give eye into their hands. And God started this road to redemption with a new start. And that would be the first blank if you have the sermon outline or if you're following along online. Look at verses 1 and 2. A new start. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. As I read that, I thought there's something beautiful about the opening verse of this chapter. No matter what you make of the rest of this chapter, there's something beautiful about that first verse. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine that Joshua is feeling pretty down and discouraged at this point. The city of Ai had failed to be taken. They thought it would be easy. Uh, They only sent about a tenth of their men. and, uh, And some of those men had been killed. And then there was this incident with Achan And uh, they had to take Achan outside the city walls, and he was stoned, and then burned, and stoned. And they built a big heap of stones over him. And I imagine as Joshua goes through all this, he just has to be discouraged. This is not going according to plan. And how welcome then to hear these words coming from the Lord, now for the third time to Joshua, do not fear. And do not be dismayed. And I wonder if that's all you take away from this message. 
Do not fear and do not be dismayed if that's enough. I think sometimes, particularly in this past year, there's days we all needed to hear that. And no matter what else you may make of the revelation of God in this chapter, whatever else you learn about the character of God, do not lose sight in the way in which God ministers to his servant Joshua. He says to him, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Second, notice that the conquest of Ai involves only partial destruction. We know from verse uh, 26 that Joshua devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. However, according to God's command in verse 2, the Israelites are allowed to plunder Ai and to keep the spoils and livestock which they captured. Jericho, in contrast, was fully devoted to destruction in which everything was either to be destroyed or put into the Lord's treasury. And it's interesting, after everything that happened with Achan, where he stole some things that were meant for the Lord, that this time they're allowed to carry off the plunder. And we may be tempted to think, why did God react the way he did with Achan if now they can carry off the plunder? The question isn't whether or not they need the plunder. The question is, will you hear the Lord's instruction and do what he says? They're learning the importance of obedience. It also shows us the needlessness of Achan's coveting. God will always give his people more than they need. So we need to trust in his ways and not take it upon ourselves to take what is in ours. Next, the conquest of I would involve a new strategy, verses 3 through 13, a new strategy. Starting at verse 3, so Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and, that, and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Battle of Cowpens. as in South Carolina. It's one of the most famous southern battles of the Revolutionary War. 
it pitted the British Lieutenant Colonel Sir Banastray Carleton and his British Legion, which was cavalry, against American Brigadier General Daniel Morgan from Winchester, Virginia. And Morgan set out his men in three lines on two low hills in open woodland. And Tarleton, known for his aggressive nature, led his men into a headlong assault. And when the Americans saw the British cavalry approach, Morgan had his front line, which was largely untrained militia, fire one shot and then retreat behind the second line and join the third line. Then as the British cavalry charged, the second line fired, fell back and joined the third line. And the British just saw the men retreating and pressed the attack. And they ran smack into a reinforced third line of veteran Continental regulars. And the massed fire of the third line broke the British charge. Tarleton's troops took massive casualties, 110 dead, 200 wounded, 500 captured. More recently, the battle was made famous at the end of the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. And to this day, Morgan is credited as a tactical genius. And this fake retreat came to be known as a defense in depth. But Daniel Morgan didn't invent it. He was a student of the Bible, and apparently he was familiar with Joshua chapter 8. See, here in Joshua 8, Joshua obeys the Lord by setting up an ambush. We're told he chooses 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he sends these troops into hiding, and the forces are to remain close to the city of Ai, and to remain ready for battle, verse 4. And the plan calls for Joshua and the bulk of his troops to approach the city of Ai from the front. This movement is to sort of echo the first Israelite assault on Ai that was recorded in chapter 7. And then Joshua and his men will flee before the soldiers of Ai the same way they did as the first attack. But in reality, this flight is merely a feint or a decoy to draw Ai's forces away from the city. And when the enemy forces that are drawn away from the city and away from the main gate, um, then the Israelite troops who are waiting in ambush are gonna come out of hiding, capture the city, and burn it. And Joshua presents this plan with confidence in verse seven, because he says, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Joshua is certain this ambush will succeed because it's from the Lord. And now Joshua puts the plan into action. He takes the army. They camp in front of the city of Ai. There's a ravine that separates them from the city. He sends 5,000 soldiers to lie in wait in ambush at the rear of the city. And so he has this large force uh, with Joshua in the front and a smaller force lying in wait behind. And that brings us to the actual battle. And here we see the Lord give Joshua and all Israel a new victory. So we've had a new start, a new strategy, and now we have a new victory. Starting at verse 14. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. 
but he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, and I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that. It's an ancient pincer movement technically known as the double envelopment for those military buffs. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. We get one of the first really descriptive battles. There are more to come in the conquest of the promised land. But this is the first where we really have the battle described. And so when the king of Ai sees the Israelites in front of the city, he sends his victories and his grasp just like the first battle, and he musters the army and goes out to meet the Israelites uh, in battle and to meet the troops under uh, Joshua, and they flee. Verse 16. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. So they soldiers flee, the people of Ai chase them, and they leave the city uh, behind and unguarded. The city is ripe for the picking. And so in contrast to the first attack, here the Lord is directing the battle plan. He gives orders to Joshua, verse 18, to stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Command is reminiscent of ones the Lord gave to Aaron and Moses during the events in the wilderness. 
But now the raising of the javelin serves as a signal for the ambush to begin. In response, the 5,000 men lying in wait move quickly into the city and they capture it and set it on fire. And the soldiers of Ai don't realize that the Israelite retreat was fake until they see the smoke rising from the city. But by then it's too late. And then the Israelite forces under Joshua, they also see the city burning. And at this site, his 25,000 troops turn around and attack the army of Ai. At the same time, the 5,000 Israelite soldiers who are inside Ai rush out and strike the enemy from behind. And the army of Ai is caught in a military vice with nowhere to flee, and the entire army is destroyed. Not one remains alive. This is according to the Lord's instructions back in verse 2. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. And so we read about this battle. And we think all this. Joshua and the Israelite army killed every man, woman, boy, and girl in I. And let's be blunt. They burned, beat, stabbed, and hacked them to death. And there is no way to put a shine on that. And it makes us more than uncomfortable. But we need to read it in the right way. We need to read it through the eyes of the Lord. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Moses is speaking and there he says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that's what we need to see in these chapters. This is the judgment of God against the wickedness of the nations. And at the outset of this engagement, Joshua stretched out his javelin towards Ai. Previously, we saw that served to signal the beginning of the ambush. However, in verse 26, we're told that he held the javelin in his hand until all the people of the city had fallen. It's reminiscent of an earlier uh, battle between Israel and the Amalekites at Rephidim in Exodus 17. During that battle, when Moses held up his hand, Israel dominated the battle, but when he rested his hand, the Amalekites held sway. So it's likely that Joshua raising a javelin and holding it up throughout the battle of Ai has the same purpose, to show the people that Israel is victorious through the power of God. Once again, also showing them that Joshua is the new Moses. And in the second battle of Ai, the Israelites obey the Lord's command and they triumph through the power of God. And then we get this unique pause in the story. This is the second time they've sort of stopped what they're doing and essentially had a type of a worship service. And so here we see verses 30 to 35, a new commitment, a new commitment. It says, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, 
as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that that is written in the book of the law. It was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So immediately before Israel invades the promised land, the people were camped in the plains of Moab. And there Moses preached on the law that God had revealed at Mount Sinai. And towards the end of his exposition, which is very long, in Deuteronomy, beginning of Deuteronomy 27, Moses commands that when the people of God cross into the land of Canaan, they are to conduct a covenant renewal ceremony. And this would serve to remind them about obedience and disobedience, blessings and curses. And that's what Joshua is doing now. He's reading to the people the whole counsel of God. And of course, we would rather have the blessings, but the whole counsel of God includes the curses too, or the consequences of disobedience. Now I have a slide to sort of show where they are. Okay, so on the left is Mount Gerizim and on the right is Mount Ebal. And if you can't see that at home, in the sermon notes is a copy of that picture. So you can look there as well. So as a central part of this ceremony, Israel is going to place a new copy of the law, which contains the terms of the covenant on Mount Ebal. And half the people are then going to recite to one another the blessings of the covenant while standing in front of Mount Gerizim. And the other half of the people would recite the curses of the covenant while standing in front of Mount Ebal and fulfillment of Moses' command to conduct this covenant renewal ceremony. This ceremony underscores the truth that the law, the word of God, is the very heart of Israel's existence. It's to be Israel's first priority. And all of Israel, every person, native or sojourner, young or old, men or women, are to take part in the covenant renewal ceremony. All the people of God must give all obedience to all the word of God. And the word of God is to be the very lifeblood of these people. So they start the ceremony by building a special altar and then uh, sacrificing burnt offerings and peace offerings on it. And the altar is built on Mount Ebal, which is the mountain of curses, which is the one to the right. That's obviously a more modern day picture, but uh, the mountains haven't changed a whole lot. And it's built on the mountain of curses because they want the people to see the smoke rising from the top of Mount Ebal. So as they promise their obedience, their eyes are drawn to the smoke rising from the mountain of curses. 
And it's important to see that from the mountain of curses, there's an altar that speaks of forgiveness. And then they take large stones and they cover them with, it's like plaster, and they inscribe the law on them. And then the people are divided into the two groups and placed in front of the two mountains. And the valley forms a natural amphitheater. And you can go there today, and what you say in front of one mountain can be heard across in front of the other. It's sort of a natural uh, amphitheater. And so Moses gives directions for half the tribes to stand in front of Mount Gerizim as a symbol of blessing, and half the tribes to stand in front of Mount Ebal as a sign of curses. And all of this is in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 11, verse 29, which says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. So they are fulfilling the instructions of Moses when they do this. Then the Levites carry the Ark of the Covenant and set it in the valley between the two groups on the two mountains. And its central position in the ceremony shows its centrality to the very life of the people. And of course, inside the Ark of the Covenant are the original um, covenant, the original commands, or the original copy of the law. Um, and in between the two mountains is the city of Shechem uh, there. And that's important because God appeared to Abram at Shechem centuries earlier, promising to give his descendants this land. That's Genesis 12. Jacob lived near Shechem, Genesis 33. And now God is keeping his promise to give Israel the land of Canaan for Joshua and the nation st standing in the very place that was pledged to the patriarchs. So all of this sort of Bible uh, history and pledges and promises in the Bible is all being fulfilled in this ceremony. And finally, Joshua reads all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, to the people as they stand separated in front of the two mountains. And this was done responsively, similar to our prayer time. So he would read and they would respond. And so there'd be blessings and then there'd be curses and there'd be blessings and curses and they go back and forth. And the passage, most scholars think that he would have read Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which is a long series of blessings and curses that come upon Israel, all depending on whether or not they obey the covenant. So this covenant renewal ceremony taking place in this special place between these two specifically chosen mountains are technically witnessed by the mountains. We know that because later on, as Israel becomes corrupt and they're about to be sent into exile, God calls these mountains to judge Israel. We see that in Micah chapter 6. It says, Hear what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundation of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So these specific mountains have seen it all. They're there at the making of the covenant promises 
in Joshua 8 at this covenant renewal ceremony, but then they're there for the breaking of those promises and the judgment that's going to come upon them. And the mountains would hear the case that God brings against Israel and passes judgment. And if Israel were guilty, the land would spew those people into exile. And that's exactly what happened. We can take the slide down now. Thanks. It helped the people at that time, helps us today, to know what's most important. It's not about the fighting. There's a time to remember what God has done and to remind the people of the need for obedience to God's word. And this reminder is for everyone that says native or sojourner, young or old, man or woman, so they would know how to live in the light of God's holiness and faithfulness. But there's a second reason for the reading of the law. And I think Joshua is reminding the people why God used them as an instrument of his judgment against the people of Ai. We've already talked about judgment coming upon them because of their wickedness. But now in reading the law, in repeating the blessings and curses of the covenant, we're given a clear contrast between the ways of God and the ways of pagan, pagan people and false gods. Few things worth noting. God has been amazingly patient with I up to this point. They had heard what God had done to the Egyptians when the Israelites came out of Egypt. They had heard what the Israelites had done to the kings Sion and Og. They had seen the miracle at Jericho. I mean, I is a small city. They had spies. They knew God was bringing the Israelites into the land. Remember what Rahab said when the spies went into Jericho back in chapter 2? I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Rahab confessed to them that for 40 years, the people of Jericho were fearing that day when Israelites uh, would cross the Jordan River and come into Canaan. And no doubt the people of Ai knew that too. They could have done what Rahab did. They could have aligned themselves with the Israelites. They could have... Uh, come to them and said, we want to worship your God and we want you to have mercy on us. But they didn't. They set themselves against God and his people and they didn't repent, even though God had given them years to do so. But not only did the people of I not repent, but you have to know what they're like. If you read all the laws and commands of Deuteronomy 27 and 28, that God has given his people, it brings up a lot of questions. Why did God command his people not to commit bestiality? Why did God command his people not only to refrain from adultery, but also incest? Why did God command his people not to commit pedophilia? Why did God command his people not to pass their children through the fire? Because all the people outside Israel were doing all that stuff. the only way to understand that level of wickedness. And God wanted the Israelites to show what his holiness looked like in distinction to the Amorites and the Canaanites and all the people that lived around him, including the people of Ai. 
God wanted them to see what holiness was like. And God had been gracious. He had allowed them time to repent. He gave them a witness. And yet they still didn't repent. And they continued in abject wickedness. So the day came when God said, it's time. And afterwards, God had the people repeat the blessings and curses before the mountains so they would know the power of God on behalf of those who obey his word. All of his word. You know, one of the, I think, marvels of the internet is this thing called Pandora Radio. When you listen to a radio station in your car, you have to listen to every song they play. You can change the station, but you can't change the song. You're stuck with whatever they decide to play, but not so on Pandora. On Pandora, you put in whatever singer or band or song that you like, and they use some fancy algorithm to parse the music that you list. And so the algorithm is asking, like, is it soft rock? Is it hard rock? Does it have guitar leads? Does it have a front man? And it analyzes uh, what you like. And so it can add similar songs and artists into the mix. And by each song, uh, Pandora puts a little thumbs up or thumbs down sign. So if you click on the thumbs up, that algorithm is aligned more to your musical taste. They say, oh, we got this one right. And if you click the thumbs down, uh, Pandora just skips that song and brings up a different one uh, for you to judge. And see, we live in this age of customization of lifestyle and belief, and that's sort of become the norm. We expect to be able to do a thumbs up or thumbs down on just about everything. And that's often how we approach the Bible. I mean, I like the book of Joshua about God bringing the Israelites into the promised land. I don't so much like the parts about all the killing. I like Jesus and the Beatitudes. I don't particularly like it when he talks about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand. And we want to customize our view of the scripture and ultimately our view of God. It's like we have our own internal algorithm sorting through, processing all the biblical data to say, oh, I accept this part, I'll preach this part, this part is useful. But that other part, well, that's just embarrassing. And when we do that, we're setting up our own algorithm, setting up our own standards for God's behavior. And we're asking God to conform to our understanding of justice and righteousness. And people uh, choose to make God fit their man-made theology. And a lot of it is we're trying to make God out to be a nice guy. But an honest reading of the scriptures simply says that God has his own standards. And his justice is perfect. And his righteousness is beyond measure. And when we try to make him fit our idea of how he ought to behave, we're limiting him by trying to humanize him. And even if we declare our intention to follow and trust the Lord, just like the Israelites, we fail and we compromise. And that's a big problem because of God's justice and righteousness being perfect and so far above us. And because God's so holy and he doesn't change and he demands wholehearted obedience. And as we've now seen in several chapters in Joshua, there are real serious consequences. So what are we trying to learn from all this? 
Let me summarize it in a few basic points. First, even in the context of victory and obedience in the battle of Jericho, sin raises its ugly head. Sin is ever-present. We see that here. Second, we see God's anger burn against sinners and their serious consequences. We see what it looks like to be under the wrath of God uh, for Achan and for the people of Ai. Third, we're reminded of the centrality of God's word and the life of God's people as they stop and listen to Joshua read the book of the law. We're reminded that obedience matters. Reminds us of the importance of submitting to God's word, living by it, saturating not just our heads but our hearts with the truths we learn in God's word. This is where we learn who God is. This is where we learn who we are and what we're like. And this is where we learn how to live in obedience to him. And that's what we learn in these chapters. There's one more thing that we learn here in Joshua 8. And that's we see the gospel in judgment. There's one person and I who singled out. Did you notice that? Verse 23. But the king of I they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. This one matter remains for the conquering Israelites. What to do with the captured king of Ai? Now, now there's a theme throughout scripture uh, about the king. Often the king is mentioned instead of the country or instead of the people. Remember when Abraham rescued Lot, the text describes the battle of the five kings uh, versus the four kings. The kings represent their countries and their people. And if you look, Uh, Even today, Revelation 6, we studied it this morning in Sunday school. When the sixth seal is open, it's the kings of the earth, the first one to run into the caves and cry for the mountains to fall on them because they fear the Lord, because the kings represent their people. Joshua knows that. And the king of Ai is kept alive for this unique and special punishment. All the others are put to death immediately. But the king is preserved and brought to Joshua. Now Joshua would know the command where God said, if someone is really, really cursed, you hang them on a tree. It's a sign of disgrace to expose a body like that, Deuteronomy 21. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Joshua knew this king represented all the people and all their wickedness. This king represented all the sins of all the people, and Joshua puts them to death and hangs them on a tree and leaves them there in disgrace. There's no greater punishment at this time. There's no curse too awful for this king because he's the leader of these people. He bears the sins of his people, and Joshua brings them outside the city walls and hangs them there in defeat and disgrace. And his fate serves as an example and a symbol. And then it says they take his body down because you can't leave it overnight. And they threw it at the entrance to the city. And then finally the people placed a great heap of stones on top of the king's body. It's an awful picture. Now that last act is the same as the Israelites did to Achan's body in Joshua 7. Both heaps of stones are monuments but they're memorials to contrasting attitudes and actions. The heat piled over the body of Achan represents Israel's sin 
and testifies to their disobedience. The heap over the king of Ai symbolizes Israel's restoration and testifies to their obedience. Now, it's real easy when you read all of this awful stuff to judge God for that act. And if you do that, you're going to have a real problem with something that happens 1,300 years later. Because there's another king, and his people are every bit as wicked as the people of Ai. His people are guilty of all kinds of atrocities and sins. His people deserve the same death penalty the people of Ai received. And that king's name is Jesus, and he represents all the sins of all his people. And one day he's taken outside the city walls, and he bears the sins of all those he represents, and he's hanged on a cross. And God's judgment is poured out on him. He bears God's wrath. The same curse that Joshua inflicted on the king of Ai is applied to Jesus. And yet this king is different. Because unlike the king of Ai, this king, although he represents all his people and he bears all their sins, this king has himself not sinned. This king is perfect. This king is holy. Yet this king takes our guilt and receives our punishment. God's judgment is poured out on him and his people are allowed to live. I find it much more difficult to understand why God allows the people of King Jesus to live than I do understanding why God allowed the people of Ai to die. See, the great tragedy in Joshua 8 is not the means of their death. The great tragedy is they deserve to die and they receive that death. But King Jesus, when he died, he took our sins upon himself so that we don't have to die. God's wrath and God's mercy meet perfectly in this king on the cross. God's judgment and God's love are displayed in this king who didn't deserve to die, though his people did. So if we have a problem with the God of the Old Testament, then I assure you, we gut the gospel. Because the same God who judges the king of Ai for the sins of his people judges his own son for the sins of his people. The gospel with no wrath is no gospel at all. You cannot understand mercy and grace until you understand that what you deserve is death. I don't need Jesus to be my buddy or my best friend or my traveling companion in life. I need him to be my king who represents me and you. It's time to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we fail to obey, times when we break our promises to you, times when we break your holy law. And so we thank you for the one who was made a curse for us, who bears all our sin on the cross, and who redeems us by his blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. Forgive us, O Lord, for our failure to obey your word. Forgive us for our failure to believe your word and work in each of us this year as we live with Joshua, 
as we learn to be strong and courageous, not to be frightened and not to be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we may go. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Joshua, draw us ever closer to the one who, on the cross, took the wrath we deserved. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.